that we'll be seeing today in Jesus' lineage. Second Samuel 7. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your house and concerning his house, or concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. 
and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And um, while, we're, while we're at it, uh, why don't we open to Matthew 1 together? Now, a kind gentleman made me what I am fairly certain is a uh, 95% certain was a fake offer of $25 to cut out the seven middle pages of my sermon. Um, like I said, I'm 95% sure he was joking, and, and I, I denied the claim. So, <laughs> um, How many of you have ever read or seen uh, The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain? Okay. So in that book... Um, Edward, the Prince of Wales, and a lookalike peasant boy named Tom switch places for a while, and they experience life in each other's shoes. Um, and it's a bit of a jarring experience for both of them. Tom isn't used to the customs, the routines, and the rigors of palace life, and Edward is shocked to see what street life is like in the kingdom that belongs uh, to England, to his family, where he rules. His father is the king. Now, during their switch, King Henry VIII, Edward's father, dies, which makes Edward the rightful heir to the throne. And the peasant Tom, who at that time is dressed and is playing Edward, uh, he's almost crowned king when Edward shows up. And Edward, Edward says, hey, I'm the prince. I'm the prince of Wales. I'm the guy who you're supposed to be crowning king. But the problem is Edward doesn't look very princely and so nobody believes him. He doesn't look like he should. But when Edward takes out the great seal of England, that's all the proof they need to know this is the true king. Thankfully, Tom supports Edward's claim, hands the throne over, Edward becomes king, and the story ends well. But it goes to show you how important it is to show your receipts if you're making big claims. Now, Matthew's gospel aims to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the seed of Abraham and the son of David, who has the right to the throne as Israel's king. And that theme shows up from the very first verses, from verse 1, where we see he's the son of David, and then in the first chapter, where um, he's born, and then getting into the second chapter, where Magi from the east come and bow before him, and then Herod, threatened uh, by Jesus tries to have him killed so that he wouldn't be a threat to Herod's throne. Jesus is the king, but the problem is Jesus doesn't look like a king. He plays the part of a pauper. Just exactly what the prophets foretold, but not what the Jews were expecting. And in the opening verses of the New Testament, in the royal genealogy of Jesus, Matthew brings the receipts to prove that Jesus is the rightful king to sit on the throne. And last week, we saw in the first set of 14 generations that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, 
the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that established Israel as a people and promised blessing ultimately to the entire world. And today we look at verses 6 through 11 where we see that Jesus is the promised son of David who rules the world forever. And that's what, that's what Matthew is showing in these verses. Jesus is the promised son of David who rules the world forever. And so if you would look with me at verse 6 through 11, this is our text today. Beginning in the middle of the verse, it says that David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And I trust that you'll know how to apply that, and we'll go home now. Well, last week we saw that the best way to understand the big picture of the Bible is to work through the covenants that God gives. Now, we looked somewhat in depth at the Abrahamic covenant in order to understand the significance of that first set of 14 generations. Today, we need to begin by considering the Davidic covenant, which gives us the backdrop to understand the second set of names spanning the 400 years between David's reign to the time that Israel was carried away to Babylon, about 600 BC. Now, if you would keep your marker in Matthew 1 and then join me back in 2 Samuel 7, where we just read, we're going to make a few observations from that text that will set us up well to understand the significance of the names we just read, that mostly when we read them or listen on audio Bible, we easily gloss over. So this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, makes up uh, our scripture reading this morning, and so we've already read about the covenant that God made with David. Now, like all the covenants of scripture, the Davidic covenant is several things. Like all the covenants of Scripture, the Davidic covenant fulfills certain criteria that make it, in fact, a covenant. First being that it's initiated by God. David didn't show up and say, hey God, let's make a deal. No, God did this in response to something very different on David's mind. And then second, it was given to a specific people, as all the biblical covenants are. In this case, it's to David and his royal descendants. Third, it it establishes the nature of the relationship between God and those people, namely Israel's kings. And then in the covenant, God makes promises, okay, which we're going to see in a moment. He promises blessing for obedience to the terms of the covenant. And then he declares sanctions for disobedience to the covenant. Those are the key elements in all of the biblical covenants as we saw last week. Now, oftentimes, the opponents of covenant theology will point out that the word covenant isn't always used in places where we see covenants. And I understand the concern, right? We want to be biblical in our terminology, and yet, I've never found the word trinity in the Bible. And when it comes to certain covenants, like the covenant of creation, also known as the covenant of works, it's true that in that passage, Genesis 1 and 2, we don't see the word covenant And yet we saw Hosea referring back to that most likely when he says that like Adam, my people have transgressed the covenant. Now, if we're reading carefully in 2 Samuel 7, the word covenant doesn't show up here either. 
But we get to Psalm 89, where this covenant is explicitly called a covenant. And the psalmist says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. And it's God speaking through the psalmist. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. The Davidic covenant. And so these verses contain the truths that we need to know and believe if we're going to understand Matthew's gospel correctly. Specifically, the list of names in verses 6 through 11. So let's dive in first to the promises that God makes in the Davidic covenant, and then we'll turn to the fulfillment of the covenant. So let's look at the promises of the covenant. The first promise made to David is the promise of land, which sounds an awful lot like at least it reminded me of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Because Abraham was promised land. Well, David is promised land, and specifically land for a kingdom, Land for a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel over which David and his descendants would reign. And so after setting the stage in verses 8 through 9, where God reminds David, as if David needed reminding, but maybe he did, hey, when I found you, you were a shepherd, and now you're the king. Now, in verse 10, the Lord says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. So this is the promise of a specific land for a specific people, Israel. So Israel's going to have a kingdom. They're going to have a king over that kingdom. And that king is going to come from David's line. And when Solomon takes the throne and builds the temple, he, he declares in his great prayer over the temple that the Lord has kept his promises. He has fulfilled his covenants, just as he said. And it's true. God always keeps his word. But there's a tension. At least it makes me uncomfortable. When I read verse 10, which says that Israel will move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore. I've read through the Bible a few times, and I know that as the story goes on from there, Israel is not free of oppression. She is not free of harassment. Things do not go so well for her in the next pages of scripture leading up to the New Testament. There's this thing called exile of the northern tribes to Assyria, and then Judah and Benjamin go to Babylon. Then the Persians come in, and even though they let Israel return, it's still like, great, we have overlords. And then the Romans. They were a tyrannical bunch. Israel may have looked back at 2 Samuel 7 and gone, what gives? What's with this covenant where we are supposed to not be harassed like this? And so we see that God's discipline is real. The sanctions of the covenant are true. If if the king disobeys and Israel is unfaithful, which is exactly what happened, they would experience expulsion from the land of Canaan. And so the ultimate fulfillment of this everlasting peace in an everlasting kingdom requires us to move further than the immediate days ahead. It requires us to look further to a fulfillment that will ultimately come through a particular son of David that isn't recorded yet in the pages of the Old Testament. So the first promise is land. Second, we have the promise of a house. The promise of a house or a royal line for David. See, now this is poetic. This is beautiful. David wanted to build a house for God. But God says, 
No, I will build a house for you. David was thinking of a structural house. God said, I'll build you a royal house. And from your son will come my structural house. So verse 11, the second half says, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now David's predecessor, King Saul, was unfaithful. He was, he was very unfaithful to Yahweh, and the kingdom was taken from him and given to David. But in the Davidic covenant, David is told, I will not do with your house what I did with Saul's. Now, God knew exactly what David would, would do after this covenant was given. He knew what sins David would commit. He knew what sins David's descendants would commit, and God promised this anyway, because he's gracious, he's merciful, and his will will be accomplished. And so when the kingdom split in the days of David's grandson and David's family ruled over only two of the 12 tribes, like, how's that for a royal blunder? Like, hey, congratulations, kid. You've inherited 12 tribes and three days or whatever in, we're down to two. Awesome. Be remembered as that guy. Now, what's interesting is the Davidic covenant is what the the chronicler traces. Okay, the whole point of Chronicles that makes it different from First and Second Kings is that First and Second Kings tells the story of all the kings, Israel in the north, who are all wicked, and then Judah in the south, some of whom are good. And then Chronicles leaves out all the kings of the north and focuses only on the royal line of David to make a point to those who are coming back from exile. This is the line you want to be watching. Why? God made a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, watch out. Fulfillment is coming. Fulfillment is coming. And so in Matthew's genealogy, Jesus' right to the throne is traced only through the kings of Judah. There's not, there's not a king of Israel in the whole lot in Matthew's genealogy. Because the house of David is insured in the Davidic covenant. It's a lineage of grace. And third, the third promise of the covenant is that David's descendants would have an eternal throne. An eternal throne. So verses 13 and 16, we see this clearly. The Lord says that he shall, uh, David's descendant shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. When God repeats something three times in the span of four verses, listen, that's called bold, italics, and underline. Okay. They didn't have word processors, but God knows how to get it done. David's kingdom would be a forever kingdom, and his throne would be a forever throne, which is a remarkable promise, right? This is a remarkable promise. And so it's no wonder to us that David's response is to burst into praise and thanksgiving in his prayer in 2 Samuel 7. Now, one of the amazing features of the Davidic covenant is that the old, as the Old Testament develops, we have clues and even outright statements that the covenant points beyond the strict boundaries of Canaan, and it points beyond the national people of Israel and their land. In one of the most victorious psalms that focuses on the Davidic covenant and David's heir, beginning with Solomon but definitely looking far beyond Solomon, we see these words that would never be fulfilled in any of the kings of the Old Testament. It says, He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. 
The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Well, that's not what happened with Solomon. It's definitely not what happened with any of the other Judaic kings in the Old Testament. This psalm very clearly sees ultimately David's throne being established over all the peoples of the world and that the kingdom would fill the earth. Something that leaves the end of the Old Testament. If you're a Jew in the first century and you have the end of your Bible at that point in Malachi, you're very much wondering, when's that going to happen? Because it's not been in our history, but it's coming. It's coming, which raises the question of the fulfillments, the fulfillments of the Davidic covenant. Right? We understand the promises, land, house, um, eternal throne, but when's that going to happen and what's it going to look like? That's the good stuff, especially if I'm a first century Jew under Roman tyranny. Perhaps it's these kind of promises that maybe misread, led Israel to try to look for a political Messiah and miss the pauper king, Jesus. Well, we, we understand the promises here. And as we look at the words of the covenant in 2 Samuel 7, we see pretty quickly that there has to be, it has to be, no two ways about it. Actually, that's kind of funny, two ways. It's a double fulfillment. It's a double fulfillment. Okay, in the immediate sense, the covenant explicitly promises Solomon. It promises Solomon, the son of David and the wife he stole from Uriah. So David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband was the turning point of David's reign. Not in a good way. If you look at it from a literary standpoint, the book of 2 Samuel, everything leading up to chapter 11, it, it's like the rise and triumph of David. And then you get to chapter 11 to this watershed moment where David commits adultery and murder uh, in chapters 11 and 12, and then it goes downhill from there. Now, God has mercy on David. The gospel is declared and applied to David, but the consequences are very real, and the second half of his reign is nowhere near like the first half. And yet, one of the gracious gifts of God, which is promised in the Davidic covenant and brought about from David's marriage to Bathsheba, is the glorious reign of Solomon and his building of the temple of Yahweh. The pinnacle of Israel's life. The place they looked for national identity as the people of God. And we know Solomon is immediately in view in 2 Samuel 7 because of what God says about David's son in verses 12 through 15. What does he say? He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, which is what Solomon did, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now this is where we know this has to be Solomon, not Jesus, because it says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Of these two guys, Solomon and Jesus, which one sinned? Exactly. You don't even have to answer it. Solomon every time. Jesus is the spotless son of God. And so for David's son to commit iniquity, we know that's not talking about Jesus. It has to be Solomon. That's the near fulfillment. Okay. Um, we read about Solomon's sin in 1 Kings 11. 
this is kind of after a really good start where Solomon ended up. I mean, not ended in the extreme sense, but this is, this is like a huge blemish on his reign. It says, King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. God had said that. Well, what happened? Oh yeah, God was right. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And the jokes, I'm restraining, the jokes I'm restraining at this point are just, that's a lot of wives. For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the God, or to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Now, as the story goes on, God disciplines Solomon according to the terms and sanctions of the Davidic covenant. He disciplines Solomon by raising up opposition and rebellion against him. Now, at the end of his life, after his idolatries and his dauntless pursuit of pleasure and glory, Solomon learned that a life spent chasing anything other than the one true God is a life of futility and vanity. We know that he ended up realizing that because he left us the book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, don't do what I did. Seek God in your youth. That's how you have a good life. Okay? And so don't make the same mistakes. But Solomon isn't the end of the story of the Davidic covenant, is he? Right? He may be the near fulfillment, but Jesus is the ultimate far-off fulfillment. And so the author of Hebrews takes up part of Psalm 110, and he puts it together with part of 2 Samuel 7, and he applies them to Jesus. He writes this, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, while the immediate focus of the words, I will be a father to him, and he shall be my son, while the immediate focus of that is Solomon in 2 Samuel 7, Christ was always the deeper and more glorious layer baked into the covenant cake. Jesus was always there. He may have been obscured at points. The people may not have seen him, but he's there. And the New Testament writers teach us how to see him. So Solomon's kingdom, it disintegrated in a big way when his foolish son lost ten tribes, and a long line of descent into sin ultimately led to the exile that Matthew refers to in his genealogy in verse 11. Hardly the glorious fulfillment and kingdom of the covenant promised in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 72. But thanks be to God, the terminus of the covenant was never Solomon. It was always Christ. It's always Christ. And as Paul says, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen to the glory of God. All the promises. As the eternal Son of God was about to become man, an angel shows up and says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the declaration that the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the final fulfillment, had come. Jesus is the promised son of David who rules the world forever. That is the backdrop that Matthew has in view when he traces Jesus' genealogy from from verse 6 on. These are the glorious promises that must be brought to bear over the course of a thousand years from David to Jesus, which is exactly what Matthew shows. And because God's promises always play out, we can expect where there's a covenant that promises a line, that there will be in history a covenant line. And Matthew starts with the history to show that that covenant line is exactly what happened. And so let's get back to Matthew 1. Let's get back to Matthew 1. Let's take a look now at the people of the covenant line that Matthew writes down for us. Because the Davidic covenant must be traced through Solomon, because he was its near fulfillment, Solomon is where Matthew begins the second set of 14 generations. And he specifically, now this is really interesting, verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Hmm. What do you think Matthew wants us to get from that? You see, he specifically cites the shame of David's adultery and murder by saying that Solomon is David's son by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Yes, Solomon was the promised heir. Now, this is crazy. I realized this this week. The covenant with David promising Solomon, specifically Solomon, was made with David before Bathsheba ever entered the picture. God knew what David would do in his sin, and he promised a gracious covenant line in spite of it. God's purposes are mysterious. God's purposes are perfect. And the mercy and kindness of God is seen in what he brings out of a marriage that from the perspective of God's law should never have existed. But from the perspective of God's sovereignty brought about the salvation of the world as the line is traced to the throne of Jesus who came to save us from our sins. Friends, this is why God's sovereignty isn't isn't an excuse to sit back and not be active, but it ought to prompt the most active worship. Because when you think about a God who can pull that off, who is holy and who hates sin and yet uses even the most heinous sins for his glorious purposes, yes and amen. No wonder Saul breaks into doxology at the end of Romans 11 because those are the kind of things he's just been writing about. So then Matthew names Rehoboam, the foolish son of Solomon, whose rejection of wisdom led the split of the northern tribes which lasted all the way to exile. And the stories of the kings that Matthew traces are told especially in the book of 2 Chronicles. If you go to 2 Chronicles, you'll see that 2 Chronicles, especially chapter 3 and on, that's really Matthew's primary source material for gathering his genealogy. So you can read about Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat and Joram in 2 Chronicles 12 through 21. And then with Joram beginning Uzziah in verse 8, okay, Joram begot Uzziah. This is where we have our first verifiable gap in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew skips over three generations of kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. 
which I know that a lot of you caught that. You're just like, hey, where'd those three guys go, right? No, you did not say that. And he goes straight to Uzziah, which is the king who ruled when Isaiah had his glorious vision of God's throne room. Now, there's speculation as to why Matthew skips these three generations, but what we know for sure is that the controlling principle here, what Matthew's doing, is he's restricting each set of generations to 14, because that's very significant for him. Come back next week and I'll tell you why. So, then Matthew walks from Uzziah to Jotham, Ahaz, and then good king Hezekiah, who cleansed the temple and renewed Israel's worship. But Hezekiah's son is Manasseh, the most wicked of all the kings of Judah, the one who crossed the line so much. This was, this was the red line that once Manasseh ruled and the things that he did, as detailed in 2 Chronicles 33 and 2 Kings 21, God said, that's it. I'm done. These, these guys are going into exile. It was the point of no return. His bloody rule saw the torturous sacrifice of his own sons, the gross tyranny over God's people that in Kings, it says, he filled Jerusalem with blood from one end to the other. Wicked King Manasseh was the tipping point, which Matthew traces all the way to Jeconiah in the time of exile. Not exactly an A-list of royal predecessors for the arrival of the Son of God. As far as genealogies are concerned, it's not exactly the red carpet treatment for the eternal Son who would become man for our salvation. But this is instructive. And I believe that the Lord has precious lessons to teach us from the fact of who is included in the royal line. Lessons that even though they may not be the main point of what Matthew is doing here, are nevertheless embedded because God, every word of God's word, is inspired and useful for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. And so let's remember that the main point is that Matthew is showing Jesus is the promised son of David who rules the world forever. Okay, that's the point. And in, in, in this point, there are these lessons sprinkled throughout that we need to take to heart if we are going to walk away from this genealogy as faithful citizens in the kingdom of that Son of God. So first, starting well, this is the first lesson, starting well does not ensure ending well. Starting well does not ensure ending well. In the covenant line that Matthew traces from David to the exile, some of the kings begin by seeking the Lord and walking in the ways of David, but then they falter in their faith and end poorly. So Asa, which in some of your translations is also, uh, the name there is Asaph, Asa was a good and godly king. He was a good and godly king, but he ended his life by trusting in foreign armies and physicians instead of in the Lord his God. And the chronicler doesn't say that because physicians are bad. But when our trust is in physicians instead of in the God who heals, then we have a problem, right? It's where's our ultimate hope. And Asa's ultimate hope, he ended poorly. Likewise, Uzziah, he was a good king. He feared the Lord. He walked in his ways. But at the end of his life, he pridefully entered the temple full of himself and was struck by leprosy and went out as a leper to the end of his days. A very poor end to a good reign. And so we see that starting the Christian life well does not necessarily mean that we end it well. Human nature, even for us as redeemed believers, as we battle the flesh, is to rest on past grace and drift from Christ. How easy to have a spiritual victory 
and then fall into sin, perhaps the very next day. Why? Because we took a moment away from Jesus, which is why the author of Hebrews warns us. In chapter 3, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Make no mistake, we are saved by God's free and boundless grace through Christ alone, by faith alone. There's no other gospel than that. That is the gospel that Paul says, if you hear even an angel preaching another one than that, let him be damned. No, this is the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But the mistake that often gets made is that the saving grace of God is not also seen as an empowering, equipping, and propelling grace. When we look at the way that grace is used in the New Testament, friends, it's, it's, it's grace on fire. It is a grace that fuels the engine of love for God in the pursuit of holiness. Grace is not a license to sin. Paul says, and by no means do that. But no, press on. Press on. And so how is it going with you? Are you striving with the energy that God powerfully works within you? Or have you, like these kings, lost a step? Do you find yourself losing something of the love you had at first? And if that's the case, then look to Christ by faith once again. Return to him once again. This is why we confess our sins week by week together. Because God reminds us of his grace and he says, keep going. End well. End well. Another lesson we see in verses 6 through 11 is that starting poorly does not rule out ending well. And starting poorly does not rule out ending well. Consider Manasseh. Consider Manasseh. He was the most wicked king of the lot, and if there was ever a guy who you could be sure to point out and go, that guy's not making it to heaven, Manasseh was it. He started and continued very poorly, and that's putting it mildly. But what do we read of Manasseh? Listen to how he ended after a reign full of the most bloody and idolatrous evil you could imagine. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and he received his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. One of my favorite stories of repentance in all of Scripture because if even Manasseh could receive the grace of God, we know that it's from grace from head to toe. Manasseh repented of his epic sins and trusted in Yahweh, and the Lord did what he does in the gospel. He forgave Manasseh and washed away his sins. Now, there were still grave consequences. Israel still went into exile 
And even after Manasseh's repentance, that's the reason that gets cited. But it tells us that no matter what your background, no matter how heinous your sins, Jesus is willing and eager to save you. Sometimes people get funny. And if you have been coming to church, hearing the declaration of the gospel, but not taking to heart this whole thing that we just sang, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look upward and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And you're sitting there refusing to come to Christ by faith because you feel too much shame. Remember Manasseh. The story of Manasseh is here to tell you, get to Jesus yesterday. There is nobody who is too far for the saving and cleansing work of the Son of God. But perhaps you've come to Christ, and then perhaps you've walked with him for many years, but you find that here in the middle of your story, you've fallen, and maybe you've fallen big time. And you wonder, how could I have started so well? I remember the sweet intimacy I had with Jesus, those times waking up way earlier than anyone ever should and reading my Bible. And then I did this? What happened? And you bear the guilt and the weight and shame of some big failure. And if that's you, I know that Satan is on your heels seeking to crush you with your guilt. And if there's one game that we play well, especially as Baptists, it's the guilt game. But listen, learn the lesson of David and Solomon, both of whom fell midway in splendor, okay? Like spectacular sins. You aren't doomed to be an Asa or Uzziah who ends poorly. The gospel you believed at the first is the gospel declared to you today is the gospel that Paul says we stand in until the end. And so if you find yourself today crushed under the weight of sin as someone who has walked with Christ for a long time, return again. Because friends, we never get past the gospel. That great failure today becomes a story of God's victorious grace tomorrow. And the road may be hard, but it's a road that is paved by the blood of Jesus. So come, he wants you back. The fourth, and there's only five lessons here, okay? We're getting there. Another vital lesson we see in Jesus' genealogy is that both parents and children need Jesus. So today's passage begins with the name of the man after God's own heart, followed by the promised son of the covenant who plunged Israel into gross idolatry. It includes, it includes godly Hezekiah, whose son was Manasseh. Hezekiah was a high point. How did Manasseh come in one generation? Listen to the way that one of the greatest pastors of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, puts it when he talks about this passage. He says, Observe how many godly parents in this catalog had wicked and ungodly sons. The names of Roboam and Joram and Ammon and Jaconias should teach us humbling lessons. They had all pious fathers, and they were all wicked men. Grace does not run in families. It needs something more than good examples and good advice to make us children of God. They that are born again are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Praying parents should pray night and day that their children may be born of the Spirit. 
One of the most dangerous things we can do is that to assume that because we are faithful in bringing our families to church, sitting with our families before God's word day by day, that somehow that gets the kids in. It doesn't. It is a means by which God so graciously ministers the gospel. But the gospel must be ministered by the Spirit, who goes where he wills and does what God pleases. And so we must be praying, parents, because we cannot open not one of our children's eyes, even if we have ten children. Some of you do have ten children <laughs> and are godly. But we, all of us need to pray over our children. When they disobey and we discipline them, we need to lead them to the same Christ we come to for restoration. We need to teach them what genuine repentance looks like by asking them forgiveness for our sins against them and reminding them that we aren't chastising them as people who are righteous, but as fellow sinners in need of the same Savior. And kids, kids, do you know that Jesus is for you? Do you know that you're not going to heaven because your parents are Christians? Do you know that when your parents read the Bible to you and tell you what Jesus did for you, that God wants you for himself, you personally? So when we're in church together, God wants to hear the songs from your heart as much as he wants, maybe more than some of the songs he wants to hear from the adults' lips. Like, we know how some of the people around us sing, right? Kids, we need you. Jesus wants you, and don't think that you need to wait until you get to a certain age to believe in Jesus or take Jesus seriously. He expects obedience from you as much as he expects it from Pastor Jaron. And he expects a lot from Pastor Jaron, okay? <laughs> we all of us need Jesus, and so we can't rest on the faith of our parents and coast into heaven. That's what the kings of Judah teach us. And finally, the genealogy from David to Jeconiah teaches us that God is faithful even when his people are faithless. He is faithful even when his people are faithless. And what a comfort that is. I am so glad that God's faithfulness doesn't depend on how we're doing. Because, friends, I have some pretty crummy days. But God never does. God never does. And because he never does, the covenant line continued. Because he does... Never have a bad day. Matthew 1 exists. And in the agony of exile, Jeremiah writes, This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Through Christ, we have hope. Because of Christ, we don't despair. And because Jesus came to fulfill the Davidic covenant, we can come before him in our failures and plead for grace to get back up and finish well. Finishing well and getting back up is what grace does. It's the normal Christian life. And so as James Montgomery wrote in that great hymn, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Jesus is great David's greater son. God gave David a covenant, and then David committed adultery and murder. But he returned to the God of the covenant and trusted in the one who would be the greater son. Jesus is that greater son, and Matthew holds him out for us as the greater David who comes to save us and rule the world as far as the curse is found. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the line from which you came in your human nature. We marvel 
at the human ancestry that was your right to the throne of Israel and your right to rule the world. As the eternal Son of God, you would always reign. And as the King of Israel, the promised Messiah, you came through these kings and did glorious things and continue to do glorious things. You are the heir of the covenant, and because of that, we have hope. We have life. We have joy and peace. Thank you, Jesus, our Prince of Peace. May we rejoice in the truth that we see here in this genealogy communicated by your Spirit to us. May we go from here strengthened in these truths to make war on sin, to rejoice in your grace day by day, to declare that grace to each other in our homes and in our church and in your world day by day, and to return again next Sunday to hear more of the glorious story as you re-energize us and remake us in your image, continuing to keep your promises that you will finish the good work that you have begun. And it is in your glorious name that we pray. Amen.